I had to get it how I live. Get it how I live, no handouts, had to grind for this shit, yeah I had to get it how I live, coming from the bottom, only dream to make it big, yeah I had to get it how I live, I had to get it how I live I had to get it how I live, no handouts, had to grind for this shit, yeah we transport across the border True. Three nickels and a dime is still equals to a quarter <laughs> Circle got smaller ever since they closed the border No matter how you at it, being greedy gets you caught up Cut a couple niggas off for abuse my trust Shit, I forgot, fucking clowns one raised like us nah, Shit in life, nah. having character and morals a plus yeah. If you put it all together, nothing left to discuss Which I don't know is, I've been through it all, I can't show it Trying to trick me out of my spot and I know Yo, 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 what's going on? This is another episode of the Cedar World Podcast I'm your host, Cyril Armel, a.k.a. C. Armel, and today I have a very, very special guest. Um, this is actually my real-life big brother, same mom, same dad, Christian. Sanjay, how are you doing, bro? I'm doing well, man. How are you, bro? I'm good, man. I'm good. I have not seen you in almost four years. Four years, man. It's been too long. Crazy. Craziness. But <clears throat> just a quick rundown. Obviously, like I said, you know, you're my you're my big bro. We are seven and a half years apart, roughly, Correct. I would say. Yep. Um, obviously you're somebody that I've looked up to my whole life, <laughs> literally. Um, from from sports to your opinions on music, on pop culture, on life in general, somebody who's served many roles for me personally as um obviously my brother but also a father figure in a lot of ways as well so this is a conversation that i felt like we needed to have on air that's long long overdue um obviously dating back to the millions of conversations that we've had personally between ourselves and family um, i think you're somebody who is very insightful informative and somebody that the world can draw a lot from a former professional athlete, Division One player, um, very accomplished in your own right in terms of business, uh, family man, somebody who I admire very much. So definitely honored to have you on with me right now. Thank you, bro. I really appreciate that, man. That's that means a lot coming from you. So you know, I mean, I feel like we've been through you know <laughs> a, a whole life together. I think it's you know probably say probably spans over you know what most people. Uh, probably need two or three lifetimes to achieve. You know, we've we've achieved the one so far. <laughs> so easily. I mean, it's you know, just just getting started on that. It would take ten podcast episodes. I feel like yeah, oh, yeah, to, to really dive into that. But Absolutely. really quick before we get started, I just want to give um, some some love and light to uh, to the community of Buffalo, New York. Um, obviously, last week we were awakened by a very horrific um, tragedy that seems like deja vu um, up to this point now. We've seen this happen time and time again, but I just want to give some some light and love to the to the victims um, and shout their names out. You know, we were very quick to to highlight these uh, these suspects of these horrendous crimes, but I feel like um, we, I'd be remiss to not at least give a little love to, to the victims. So we have Roberta Drury, um, Margus Morrison, Andre McNeil, Aaron Salter, Jaredine Talley, Celestine Cheney, Hayward Patterson, Catherine Massey, Pearl Young, and Ruth Whitfield, who are all 
residents or all, excuse me, residents of Buffalo, New York. Um, I'd be damned if I wake up to some news of hearing, you know, one of our loved ones, our mom, um, going to the supermarket, something that she does routinely and to hear something happening there. I mean, that's, that's something that I wouldn't even wish on my worst enemy if I had one. And I just can't even imagine how that would feel or even look like to even begin with having that conversation. So definitely want to share some love to those families um, who are all impacted by this event. Just want to get your quick thoughts on it. You know, when you heard the news, what went through your mind? You know, what, what was your, your, your point of view on that? Yeah, it was, I mean, it's sickening. Um, you know, you wake up again to another senseless act of violence, um, you know, really at the, um, at the hands again of, I wouldn't even say really even the perpetrator, but really at the hands again of this mentality um, around race, around dominance, around this sense of feeling um, that someone um, culture is being whitewashed, I guess, literally, right. Or, you know, being taken over. Um, and, Again, it goes back to America's original sin, right? Is racism, um, yeah. is slavery. And you're finding again that, you know, you can have the best of what we call um, aspirations to be this democracy that you push um, to the world. But when you don't really take care of your, again, original sin, you don't really take care of what's at home, um, really the the issues really underlying um, why it is that you're struggling, you know, as a nation, you know, all you do is just, again, it sounds great, but you still find yourself as Malcolm said it, the, the, the chickens coming home to roost is you're always going to have these situations happen because we still yeah. have not already addressed um, America's or the worthy of the world's racist past. And we're now seeing that play out day in and day out um, in these sort of senseless acts of violence again um by misguided individuals who you know for some reason through their platforms now which is obviously another topic we can talk about as far as you know the media platforms that exist now to allow for this hate speech and hate rhetoric um to run rampant but yeah i mean you know just something as simple as you know an individual i mean just think about that an individual driving what 200 some miles right like you know to do this i mean yeah. it's just you know, you, you can't even put that into words as far as like, you know, what kind of, you know, At I 18, mean, exactly. 18 years old, you're doing this. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, you know, you're, you're live, you know, streaming in. And obviously we can talk about the whole New Zealand, you know, the one, you know, the individual that shot. That he was inspired by. At the church that he was inspired by. And it's just, again, it's, you, you just see this day in and day out and it's sickening. It's just, you know, it's maddening, you know? And, you know, again, I mean, uh, you know, as we talked about it is, you know, you think about something that people do every day, um, going to the supermarket to pick up groceries, to cook for their family, um, maybe to cook for someone who's elderly, right? Someone who may not be able to take care of themselves. And to think that, you know, you're going in routinely and to have this individual come in and just start firing off, not because it disgruntled at an employee or an employer, right? You see that, but because yeah. at the end of the day, you know, I'm going to drive 200 miles to vet out my grievances or whatever grievances you believe exist for you. You're 18. What have you 
what have you really even faced? I mean, when I'm talking about this young individual, I mean, let's be honest, like, what has he faced as far as real racism or real, you know, feeling of, you know, white culture is being, I mean, you're 18. What do you know about life? You know, yeah. like that tells you everything that about how important, you know, or education system is, how important the responsibility to have factual um, information on these social platforms um, because now it's creating just echo chambers where people can just sit in there. You know, this is no different than those dark chat rooms that people used to, you know, talk about back in the day. Oh, you know, this, this only happens in those deep, dark, you know, dark web chat rooms that people just go with. Like, this is not happening in these chat rooms anymore. It's happening in plain sight, yep. right? Yep. On social platforms that are supposed to be there just for people to be able to catch up and connect with, you know, individuals that they normally would not see every day. This is what this is all about. And now we have, you know, the likes of Facebook and Twitter, Twitch, you know, all these different platforms now that are supposed to be, again, just opportunities for people to connect, right? In the ways that we're connected now through this podcast, you know, or WhatsApp and the ways that we have to be able to connect because we're so far away. But the thing now is, you know, this could be now hijacked and monopolized, right, to create, you know, these, again, dark um, sort of chat room sort of settings where people can just go out there with their deep perversions um, and have an audience um, and have yeah. people like themselves that they can find, you know, where back in the day, I mean, to find these groups, I mean, this is like a secret society, right? You have to, you have to work really hard to find people that thought like this. And go out and look for it. Like you said, yeah, definitely. definitely. You know, now the it's, you know, that killed yeah. me about it, not, no, sorry to cut you off. No, me, go ahead. Like, go ahead. Me about it was like, you know, they said there was there was warning signs that, you know, the school had been alerted of him making some threats the year before. Correct. And, you know, like, I mean, I don't of course, you don't you don't want to directly blame the parents because, you know, I don't think any parent is just raising their kid to just, you know, I mean, of course, I, I don't I don't want to misspeak, but I'm sure that there, there's some cases that it happens. But I don't think that any parent is like willingly encouraging their child to go out and commit an act of domestic terrorism. I don't think that that happens, but yes. however, if the warning signs are there, how come more precautions aren't taken to actually address it or give this kid some actual education or the actual help that he needs or remove him from certain settings or, you know, how is it easy for him to get access to these weapons? Things I, of that I, nature. Yeah. Background check done. I, I, I agree with you. You know, but I think there's a bigger problem that I think we're missing in all of this is, you know, and you're right. I mean, there, there's no way that I can go out there and say, you know, I have two boys myself. Right. And I would be mortified if either of my children would ever think of doing something like this to anybody. Um, but the only solace that I have, if I have any, really, at the end of the day, is I know, you know, deep down inside, I know I'll never be able to leave my children when I leave this earth with millions of dollars. Right. in um, inheritance or, you know, my will to be able to help them navigate and live, you know, a better existence. And I, you know, I obviously had. Right. I won't be able to leave them, you know, a lot of things that will say well to do families can leave to their legacy or children. Right. When we've grown up in that. But one thing I do know is I'm always going to leave them. And I'm leaving them now every day that I sit with them with the opportunity to educate them and to have them reflect on how the world is. And I'm asking myself is, you know, when we live in this world with parents naturally 
and I don't mean that they, they're not doing well by their kids, but when we sit in this world where we allow for the education to only take place from somebody else, and we want to be the parents that just can say, I'm just going to keep providing, right? I'm going to provide, you know, this and books and, and you know, um, money for their kids' sports, right? And, you know, their activities and, you know, vacations and all these different things. We're seeing this now. How is this any far removed? I mean, you think about how many years ago that Columbine took place, right? Like that was the first of this sort of, you know, craze around young people finding themselves, you know, in these sort of settings. I mean, is there something there that we're just missing? And that was Columbine. I mean, for me, Columbine was, you know, such a long, I mean, you know, you were super young. It's exactly, that was 99. That was the year I graduated high school, right? So you're talking about since then, you know, we're seeing this time and time again, where we're seeing kids going into the schools and shooting up people, right? And for me, I always look at it as like, what is going on in our society nowadays that, like you said, if it's education, you know, what I see, and again, for me, just my background of being a soccer coach, I see a lot of parents do everything they can to give their kids experiences and opportunities that they may not have had themselves. But you know what's sorely lacking is the opportunity that I see these parents just take on the hard role of parenting and say, I'm going to be the voice of reason, of education, of really allowing my kids, if you said, if there are those warning signs to head it off at the pass, not by just putting my kid into rehab or putting my kids, but really spending the time to say, what is going on here to try to get into my kid's mind and brain and start to think about you know, why it is that they're thinking about things this particular way. And that to me is critical because like you said, if there are warning signs, let's be honest. I mean, you know, this individual now at 18, right. Only just recently, then obviously just had the opportunity just really just show the conviction to be able to play out what has probably been in this kid's mind now for many, many years. Yeah. For a long time. So, no. Yeah, no, no, it's tough. I think the, the thing that also hurt me the most um, reviewing uh, the victims list was the ages of some of these victims. You know, you had somebody who was 86 years old, like you're going out there and killing grandmothers, yeah. great grandmothers in some cases. Like, you know, how is that? I, don't, I mean, I don't even want to continue to harbor on it, but that to me is, is the most traumatic part of it. That, you know, you have these people who, you know, they said one of them. I think she was she was out there helping the the, the hungry or something something like yes, that along those lines. Right. I think that she was feeding the hungry. Yeah. Like uh, you're minding your business, a typical probably weekend routine or whatever it may be, and you know lose your life senselessly like that because of somebody who, like you said, has never what have they experienced in 18 years? You know, I don't want to shortchange that individual or anybody who's 18 and, and going through life because there's some people who can go through a lifetime of trauma and experiences at 15, 16 years old that people can live 80 years old and never experience. So, you know, age is definitely not a factor in this. But yeah. Once again, uh, rest in peace. And, uh, to those victims of the Buffalo shooting last week, uh, much love to the families. Hopefully, um, they can find comfort and solace in their communities and hopefully going forward, just find, uh, Oh, I, I mean, I'm at a loss of words, but, you know, just wanted to share some light to them. Uh, but to lighten the mood real quick, uh, an interesting story that I came across this week. Um, for me, Twitter right now is, is kind of like the, the the in 
social media platform that I've been I've been using the last year or so. I think it's the it's the craziest one uh, from one spectrum to the other. But uh, there's a story about LeBron James Jr. Bronny James going to prom, and uh, his choice of a date kind of triggered a lot of people online. Um, make a, a, a long story short, he chose to go with a young uh, girl, a, a white girl, uh, I think from his school. And uh, it caused a lot of uproar and outrage amongst the, the woke community online about Bronny's choices. And for me personally, I just don't understand why people are so bothered about who somebody at 17 years old chooses to go to prom with. You know, but then again, you know, it just goes to show how much these celebrity lives impact other people's day-to-day lives. And, you know, I really don't get it. I'm confused, but... I don't know, I think it's it opens up a a big debate that uh that needs to be had. Uncomfortable or not. You know, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's um as I said, it's fascinating. Um I think, you know, as I really think about it, is you know, like you said again, is uh, the celebrity worship is 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 definitely out of control and for real, even to, you know, um people's children, right? I mean, obviously this is LeBron Jr. It's not LeBron, you know, um, but it still has the same impact. Um, but I think a bigger question really to be asked is, you know, do we feel the same, I guess, energy or ritual when it comes to, let's just say, like, you know, does anybody really care um, what uh, I'm just going to throw like a very famous, you know, I don't know, Jack Nicholson, you know, I mean, if he had any kids, I mean, I don't. I'm trying to think of um, a prominent uh, white celebrity, right? Who, like you say, you know what? Great example, David Beckham, right? Like, um, Mm. you know, he's obviously a big, you know, personality. And so, I mean, you know, his kids are grown now. I think his oldest just got married or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure. I think either married or engaged or something. There was something big. Um, And it's like, you know, is, you know what I mean? Again, I mean, I'm, we're just talking about this now. Like I, I can't really, you know, I remember seeing the headline, but it's not like, you know, you have this kind of worship of other, you know, celebrities, either family or children. So is that fall on components of culture, race? You know, is that what we're going through now with some of the stuff that, you know, Little Bronny taking, you know, whoever he chooses to take, which is his personal business and his interest. Now he has to carry some burden for the black community that why didn't he take a black girl? Is that is that, you know, is that the energy that's out there around the story? Definitely out there. And uh, some old pictures of LeBron going to prom with a white girl resurfaced. And of course, people are saying, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You know, this other nonsense, but wow. the, proof, the, the proof is in the pudding. You know, LeBron married Savannah, who was his high school sweetheart. Exactly. Who is black. So yes. regardless of who he married, I mean, he can marry somebody who's purple. Why why, why would you care? Exactly. Because, you know, exactly. Grown people to wake up and be bothered by somebody's prom date choice. Like, that's that's what we're, we're like, <laughs> that's what's revolved, like, the news cycle. That's, that's what's hot, the hot take at the moment. I really don't understand it. You know, for me personally, you know, obviously being somebody who's dated outside of my race, also dated within my race. Yeah. And I've heard, I've heard the comments, you know, when you go out and, you know, you could be in the middle of an area where, you know, there'll be some, some black girls and yep. you hear the snickering or whatever. 
I remember one time I was out, you know, with an ex-girlfriend and we were at the movies or whatever and some girls behind us you know, were commenting like, you know, it's like under their breath or whatever. But then they were like, oh, but, you know, she, she is cute, though. Like, so if she was if she was ugly or looked a certain way, according to them, I would have, you know, been ripped a, a new one. But because she looked a certain way, I got a pass. You know, yeah. it's like, for me personally, I never really worried about what other people did or who they dated or what their preference was. I mean, it's your prerogative. You do what you want to do. Yeah. As long as you're not hurting anybody in the process. That's how I feel about it. But, yeah. you know, for, but I think it's even bigger than that. Up and be, you know, by a 17-year-old's choice yeah. of a date, yeah. I don't but I think it's even bigger than that. I mean, you know, we look at, you know, even that story that you're mentioning is, you know, I'm I'm thinking twofold, right? Is I have this sort of understanding of you, you know, which is sad to say is this culture around nowadays is, you know, because of um, all the online dating services that exist, right? Which are, I mean, <laughs> too many to count, right? But you still have this element of people like, Oh, you know, they wake up and like, well, I could replace you tomorrow because I have Tinder, right? I have Bumble, I have Match. Like, there's so many opportunities for people to connect now. What you would think, wouldn't that alleviate you feeling this energy or this, you know, angst towards somebody else? Like, you have tons of options now, right? Literally at your fingertip, right? And we're still living in this culture where, for some reason, some of us, and I'm pretty sure you probably feel the same, including myself, some of us feel like, why should I be here to carry some, the burden of having to be something for you when you have tons of other options, right? It's like, I'm choosing what makes sense for me. I don't have to carry the burden of like, I gotta, you know, uh, I gotta carry, you know, um, the mantle for all black, you know, families and children. Like we live in a world now where supposedly the more open it is, right? The more borders we're able to just kind of alleviate those old borders also serve, you know, from who do you choose to date? Who do you choose to befriend? Who do you choose to marry? Who do you choose to have children with? Right? Like all these different things are now a freedom that we have now by no longer having to carry a certain cultural um, or societal, you know, burden, right? But you still have individuals, I think, either because their lives are not quite what they would like it to be that it's easy for them to kind of like, you know, look at this situation where Ronnie is like, oh, he's, you know, he's setting back black culture or, you know, black uh, relationships or whatever it is by, you know, taking this white girl. Who knows? Right? <laughs> but there's a lot of people out there that have this sort of element around, you know, and again, you like you said, is what is going on in your life that you need this, right? What he's doing with his personal business, no different than you could be doing with your own personal life. Why is just not a matter of choice? Like you're choosing this, they're choosing that. Move on and be and be good with it, right? But once you're tying like your plight, like my life to this is like, well, what what do I need to be there for you in that particular way? I didn't sign up for that. <laughs> I mean, Brody didn't sign up to be, you know what I mean? You know, holding up the Barack Obama. Like I need a, you know, I need to be with a strong black woman and be, you know, like yeah. he has no political, you know what I mean? Like so, I don't, you know, as you said, is I'm with you, but unbeknownst obviously to Ronnie Jr. is somehow he seemed to be like, you know, he I guess he's got the juice now, right? <laughs> he's yeah. he's got to be holding some bag or some burden for a whole bunch of people out there that he didn't even know he was. Yeah, no, nah, you know, it's 
I think it's a, like you said, it's a deep rooted issue um, that obviously is not going to be solved overnight or within the next couple of days. I mean, it's something that conversations that need to be had, uncomfortable ones for sure. But yeah. um, for me, it just goes to show like the power of social media, the power of, you know, just people not really understanding that there's life outside of that. Like, you know, I was, I was talking to somebody not too long ago about how like, what's crazy is that before we, you know, there was a world that we existed in before social media, before smartphones. Yes. Where you woke up and you had your routines, you ate as a family, you did certain things. But now it's like, you know, the first thing that people do in the morning, you reach over, grab your phone and, you know, you hop on and see who commented on what, who liked what post, who did this, who, who's dating who, who's messing with who. Like, that's your first action of the day yep. rather than getting stuff together. You know what I mean? Like some people who might even, you know, like tweet and do all of this before they even eat breakfast or brush their teeth or get ready for their day. That's just how important it is now to be linked to your phone. So I think people lose touch with reality sometimes with realizing that like, yo, like none of this really matters. Like none of this should matter to be honest. Like none of this should matter. You know, who somebody chooses to date. But I think you brought up an interesting point that I just want to dive into real quick. Like uh, obviously me being a million miles away here in China, it's actually the five-year anniversary of my move to China. I lived That's right. in China yep. on May 24th of 2017. Um, five years went by that quick. Just a backstory on that. Obviously, you dropped me off at the airport with mom. That's right. I'm a conversation that we had, you know, thinking I'll be back a year later. Yeah. I did come back a year later, but it was for vacation. Exactly. The last time I've been home, obviously, you know, um, we shared, you know, a long embrace for sure. Um, yeah. A lot of tears were shed on my part. Yeah, and mom, you kind of reassured me that you know it was the best decision that things were going to work out how they should work out. Yes, people on the outside looking in may think that you know my life is just roses and 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 daisies and all the sweet stuff. Obviously, I'm missing out on a lot of things back home that yep. I can't partake in. You know, obviously, exactly. you had a milestone birthday last year that I wanted to be home for that I had to miss because of this ongoing pandemic that we you know we've kind of have been had forced upon us um yeah. in one way or another um you guys are moving a little more a little easier than we are here because uh we still can't travel freely the way that we would like to yeah um, however though i will say this you know um you brought up a point of like you know holding up the badge of of black men that's something that i feel like i've been that's been thrust upon me since being here um obviously being in a culture where there's not too much exposure to people like us. Yep. Uh, what they do get is through sports or entertainment or movies, music, et cetera. Um, nine times out of 10, anytime I leave my house, I'm probably the only black person that many of these people will see um, at work. Whether I'm just having casual, casual conversations, I might be the first person that these people can even speak to that looks like resembles me. So I do carry a big burden um, on how I act and how I carry myself and how I treat people. Cause I do know that the, <laughs> the, the margin for error is very slim here. Yes. Um, just, I feel like I've done a good job. You know, um, some people say a great job. I, I still want to be humble. Um, obviously mom came to visit uh, three years ago almost. And, you know, she was treated very well with a lot of respect. And I feel like that's doing part to, how, you know, she raised us to be uh, very respectful and carry ourselves a certain way. And I think my respect for the culture here and the people here 
translated to her receiving the type of love that she got from my friends and peers here. Great. But um, it, it's, it's tiresome, though, I will say. Just, uh, you know, anytime there's a Black reference or whatever, you know, I'm the voice uh, that has to explain it. And I try to say all the time, like, you know, we're all different. You know, everybody's yeah. different. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't want to be the guy, the, the, the token Black dude to speak for all Black people. I can't do that. Exactly. I'm highly responsible of me. I can only speak of on my experiences growing up, you know, where I grew up, um, how I grew up, you know, having friends who went to college, having friends who were also incarcerated, um, you know, having friends who played sports, having friends who did other things. Like, you know, we had a very mixed upbringing for sure. Uh, we were exposed to a lot early due to our parents being as educated as they are and having, you know, aunts who were from India, from Switzerland, from uncles from various parts in Europe, um, South America, you know, family friends who obviously we didn't grow up with our family directly. I mean, at least I didn't, you know, for, for most of my life. I know you had a, a brief experience, you know, in Ivory Coast and Cameroon for sure. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't experience, experience that. So knowing our uncles and aunts, I didn't really have that. So we had aunts who were from all over the place. And I think that shaped my experiences here have helped propel me here for sure. Um, but yeah, how do you, like, how do you, how do you, feel like you've adapted because you know looking back on it now you know you spent the majority of your life in the states but that's not your so what was your biggest you know adjustment in terms of your upbringing and because obviously i wasn't i wasn't around for any of that your transition yeah yeah it was um it's it's even more difficult when you're trying to figure out who you are and all of these what I call subsets of um, your identity, right? Because first and foremost, right, I am 100% African, as you are as well. Also born on the African continent, which you are not, right? That's the only distinction, right? Having spent at least, you know, again, minimally, a small part of my formative years on the African continent, right? Speaking a different language raised in a different culture, who now is all of a sudden thrust and really the beginning of your identity, if you really think about it, seven years old, this is when I obviously got here, is the beginning of even Jushu, you know, like my my youngest is seven. And I only feel now that I'm, you know, like you're I'm I mean, obviously I could say he's probably had a strong personality since I've known him again. You're you're with your children and you, you know, you kind of see them uh, so you're not really quite surprised at some of the things that they either say or do or act, but he's only beginning, you know, to figure out who he is and his identity now. And you're thinking is for myself is like, I'm now having to navigate a um, bunch of subsets. Number one, I'm um, born, right. To, I'm not living in a new country, uh, living what we call as an African the American experience, right? So I'm not African-American, <laughs> right? But I'm an African living the American experience, right? Whereas at the end of the day, right, you're much more, I would say, African-American, right? You know, on at least on paper than I am, even though same mother, same father, right? <laughs> like same background, same, up, you know, like it, it's really sort of a unique um, subset, right? On top of that, you know, people don't even think about like how much your name matters, right? Like, yeah. you know, like, you know, 
again, your name very unique, obviously in Cyril and again, people who don't know, right? Um, but for myself of having to also carry this burden of like, my name is Christian, right? Like is you, you can't get, you know, it, it's hard <laughs> to go too far and having a conversation with someone to not having to go to, well, what it would be like if I didn't necessarily believe in God or had a defined religion? Like how would that work? Right. Like I don't have, like, I'm, I'm already sort of in the subset. Like we talk about again, it's like, you know, you're black. Right. And in China's like, how do you, like, it's the same thing. How do you get away from having a conversation about your skin or your race? Right. Like, you know, I can't just take it off. You know, as most people do, like, I can't just wear it like a mask and say, Oh, I'm walking out today. And, you know, I'm going to live this experience. You're a black, no matter what. And it's just a yeah. matter of somebody actually, you know, acknowledging that and enforcing you technically to have a conversation about it in the same way that I have that with my skin on top of having that with my name, as if my name, you know, has to have some implication, right? Well, you know, you're yeah. Christian. your name is Christian. What does that mean? You know, like what if I could be the worst Christian, right? Literally <laughs> in the world, right? Think about that, right? Like yeah, what kind of burden, you know, that your parents, I'm like, man, like, you know, as much as I love my name, right? I think, but you're also thinking about like, you don't even realize the kind of burden that puts on you to kind of almost be like a model citizen, right? Like if you, if you struggle with anything, well, you're Christian, your name is Christian. Your parents named you Christian. You know, you, you know, grew up in a church. Like, how could you, you know, how could you say these things, you know, about yeah. the religion? How can you say these things? So you're living a very, very unique um, experience on top of I'm also not typically African, right? Again, because of the American experience, as we talk about, you're trying to figure out who you are. I'm much more stoic in a lot of ways, right? I'm not as, as, you know, as we tend to get maybe labeled and stereotyped as, oh, you're not, you know, you have a, you have a booming voice, but you're not loud, right? In the way that people attribute Africans being, or just African-Americans in general, oh, you guys are just loud and you know, there's always a ramped up energy. You know, I'm very mild-mannered, stoic. I'm intense, right? And you're always trying to figure out where do you fit with all of these very unique skill sets that you have that all have to come together to try to explain to the world who you really are in a way that is going to make sense to people and also at the end of the day be very reflective of who you really are from a personality, uh, demeanor, um, background, upbringing, all these different things. And I think that I, I terrify people because they have no idea what to do, what to make of me, right? Like it's, you know, I'm pretty sure you feel the same way, but like they, it, it's, it's really been um, really, you know, a mind trip because I, you know, I, I don't really know how to explain myself. And I always feel like every time I go out there trying to, you know, it's, it's, it, it just terrifies people because again, people need those labels. They need to feel like, you know, and even for ourselves, you need to feel like you identify with something and, yeah. you know, you know, it's hard. Like I am African, but I'm far removed from the African continent. Right. Um, I'm black. Yes. Skin color. But if you look at our background, two parents who are very highly educated, right. Um, playing a sport, which is again, primarily a, in this country, a white suburban um, sport, sport, right? Um, so as a coach now, I tell people, like, I actually have more, I actually know how to relate better to a 11 or 12 or 13-year-old white 
or, you know, male or female, right, from the suburbs, and I do a 12 or 11, 12 or 13 roll from Trenton or Camden, New Jersey, right? Like that's, they're not my clientele, right? They're not my upbringing. Like I didn't, so it's a very, very unique sales set where, like you said, as you, you, you're trying to be genuine and authentic of who you are. And at the same time, trying to navigate a world that for, you know, has to see you this particular way, because technically on the, on, on the face value, that's what you look like, right? I'm black. Um, you know, obviously now I live in Trenton. I mean, there's all these different elements where you're like, you know, but you always almost get called out of being like, well, who are you really? Because you're confusing me. You don't really quite make sense. <laughs> so, yeah. I think it's human nature to try to put people in a box. You know, um, it's it's like like you said when you walk around and you're you're sure of yourself, you don't really feel the need to have to ever justify your actions or or your your words. Um, I think the golden rule in life is just to be stay out the way, treat people with respect, and and with, you know the way that you would love to be treated. I mean, as as old as that adage seems to be, that's the easiest way to go about life. I mean, I don't really care for um, religious affiliations or, you know, as long as you're, you try to be a good person at heart, that's, I think that's the most important thing. But, um, like you said, what's interesting is, is anything. Cause you know, for me being born in the States, raised in the States, you know, having a, a very diverse and complex upbringing. Um, cause you know, obviously with, with me, you know, mom and dad divorced when, when I was way young. So Correct. I bounced around a lot, you know, whereas I feel like when, you know, when they split up, you were already, almost on your way to, to adulthood and, you know, obviously going to college and all of that. So it impacted you the same as me for sure. But, you know, you were a, a older, old enough to process it way better than I was. Yes. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what was going on. So with that being said, like being here and you know, I coach basketball, I gravitated to basketball. You know, I had a, a background in, in soccer as well, but basketball <clears throat> drew my ear a little, yep. a little more. Being here and having some of my kids, you know, scratch my skin and try to sniff it, <laughs> you know, like yeah. a couple of times a weekend, things of that nature, and kids that come and automatically, oh, you know, are you African? And it's like, yeah, yeah, but no, like, I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's not a conversation that I, I really tend to have as much because I just feel like people here don't really understand it because the majority of the population is all one thing, one ethnic group. They're Han, exactly you know, ninety. Chinese, so they don't understand the point of being a minority within a minority, or a, you know, because okay, my parents moved to America when I was before, four months before I was born. Yes, I was raised in the states. I'm American. I'm there's you know, I've been to Cameroon twice. I can't even say that you know we visited Cameroon every year like some of our friends and family do. I, I've yeah. been there twice. Yes. So yeah, at home, you know, eat African food. I know all about jollof. I know all about fufu. I you know, I know all about it. Yeah. On. But yeah. I'm not really as linked to Cameroon as some other people would be. You know, of course, I speak the language. I speak French. We both yes. do. Yep. You know, my love for the national team is greater than, I think, 90% of the population in Cameroon. We both know that. I agree. Love Steph. Know everything about the national team. I could tell you all the players that played, you know, all the accolades from – from the first African Cup that Cameroon participated all to to the present day. Correct. So there's very few people who know the game the way that we were brought up to know the game. And that's obviously comes from home, our home education. 
But like you said, with walking around, you know, you have to carry this big burden of just being a typical black dude and all this other stuff. You know, it's just it's just funny now because it kind of made me think a lot more as to, you know, what must have been our parents' experience because we didn't really see it. You know, I didn't see it. At least, my, you know, mom and dad were, were around. I couldn't imagine, like, what their transition was coming from a whole different culture as adults, you know, having to navigate that in raising kids, being married, being divorced, all of that stuff. Like, now yeah. I'm starting to go through it on my own being in a totally different space because I never could have imagined that I would be crafting my life overseas for this long. Yes. Of course I had chances, you know, to play basketball overseas, but I would have been playing a sport at a young age and, you know, know, know what happens after that. But now being an adult adult and my own decisions and every decision I make impacts me and me only like, you know, there's nobody who's pulling my strings and, you know, whatever you do in your home life as a, as a father and a husband, like that doesn't impact me. Of course, yeah. I'm inspired by it or whatever, but like your decisions don't affect me. My decisions don't affect you for the time being. So Agreed. it's a whole different beast, you know, when you kind of figure it out, you know, on your own, because many people never have that experience to ever get out from under whatever it may be that may be holding them, you know, to a certain place. Um, I think for me personally, you know, the, the biggest reason I'm still here is obviously you and, and, and mom and, and my, my inner circle you know, giving me the strength to, to continue to do it and knowing that you guys are good back home. You know, my mind is clear on that front. You know, I don't have exactly. to worry about back home. But it's just it's just interesting how, like, things come full circle. And you never, you know, you can have a plan. You know, my plan as a kid was, okay, let me find a way to get to the league. But yep. that depends on how, how I thought it would and how I thought it should. But a lot of it is on me, not putting in the work that I needed to do. But now, obviously – like you said earlier, you know, the goal is to pass on that knowledge to the next generation for them to take those tools and take it even a step further and to leave it better than, than we had it, you know, for us. And I think that leads to the next point of like, like the black experience, the African, the African-American experience, whatever, you know, Afro-Caribbean experience, Afro-Latin experience, whatever you want to label it as, you know, we always start from a point of like, of, of ground zero kind of. You know, we don't we don't get the big inheritance or, you know, learning about certain tricks of the trade that can help further the next generation. We kind of have to figure it out on our own. Like I never knew about credit. I never knew about certain things that are very important to the American way of living or the American dream, so to say. Like we don't have that. We don't have that type of knowledge or exposure to certain things. And I think it's very tough to get from under that. Yeah, it's. um yeah, it's um, man, it's you know that's a uh, that's loaded. I mean, it's a lot. Um, the, I mean, I guess I guess in that it's really it really is much more of the African experience, right? And the fact is that if you look at uh, the history, the, the history of most Africans is like our parents is they're going to find opportunity wherever it is, right? Like it's not, you know because of the status of our countries. And obviously we know we can go into the political and, you know, geopolitical um, consequences of what democracy actually really means and why is it that most individuals, unless they are, again, somehow connected, right, already have a pretty good foundation why they would never leave the African continent, but the good majority of Africans um, do leave for economic uh, opportunities elsewhere. Um, some return, obviously, right? But the good majority just set up life wherever they've 
now created, you know, their adopted home. And like we've had is, you know, you were born here, uh, obviously, just because of the sheer nature of uh, the time period that we came to the States. And obviously, you know, I, I had my upbringing here as well, but it was still very much the African experience and being taught to not expect your parents to be around, right? To not expect your parents to, you know, except for setting up a foundation to really expect yourself to kind of navigate that path and to figure it out eventually on your own, still with the responsibility to be there for your parents, right? But, you know, that your parents didn't really, <laughs> apart from your parents giving you, you know, uh, you know, food and shelter and whatever else is, I mean, that was it. I mean, if you think about, I, you know, my oldest now, Noah, is 10, is going to be 11, all right? And if you recall and remember is, you know, very early, it was known, right, and taught to me that if you were going to get to soccer practices or whatever it is, you were going to have to find your own rides. <laughs> right? I mean, you, you know, so to tell people, like, they forget is like, since the age of 11 to 12 years old, I, I, I was getting my own rides everywhere. Right. My very, you know, again, one of my first soccer coaches, you remember Keith Abman, Keith, Keith picked me up. And I mean, that's how I fell into cars and house music. Right. Is Keith used to pick me up in his red, you remember that red, you know, Mustang GT. Right. Yeah. Or pull right up. You know, you know what I mean? 872 Johnson Apartments. You mean we'll pull right up and, you know, I mean, every game, every practice, everything that I could remember, if it wasn't Keith, if it wasn't the Curlins, if it wasn't Sean Morosi, right? Like, how did I get to these things? Yeah. You know, and you, you think about that. So for me, it was, it was going to be easy for me to be able to tell you, hey, man, like, this is the best opportunity for you, right? It's not about me. It's not about mom. It's not about, you know, what you're leaving here. It's about the opportunity you have to create something for yourself out there. And in the animal world, in the animal kingdom, how is that any different, right? A lion can't just sit there. Young male lion is a threat to the dad, right? You ain't gonna just sit here in my, <laughs> just sit here and just hang around and wait for me to, to die. Like that's not happening. Yeah. You gotta right? go out and find some problem. There you right? go, you know? And if you're not, sure. I mean, I'll remind you, I mean, you know, that male, you know, the, the father comes out, I was like, yo man, you, you two, you two fools need to leave. Like you better go find your own, you know, <laughs> I mean, you ain't going to be sitting here, you know what I mean? And that's every animal species, right? Gorillas and, you know, lions, you know what I mean? Baboons. I mean, you know, like, it's like, you don't, you can't stay here. <laughs> you know, you're a young male. You've got to go and find and create your own family, your own legacy, your own something way the heck away from here, but you ain't going to come back and, and take mine. Right. So, you know, if you think about really, you know, the, the the older school mentality of being a father, even fatherhood, that's what your father reminded you of. Hey, man, I ain't gonna be around forever. So, I'm, you know, you better you better listen and sit down with me and I'm gonna show you how to change this oil, right? I'm gonna change you how to teach you how to do this or teach you how to do that. There was much more of a a teaching component around things because you knew eventually that your kids were going to go out there and navigate this world by themselves. Right. Yeah. Um, where now, you know, these kids don't have to. You know, we talk about our peers, they don't have to. You know, and in fact, if things don't work out, they can always come back home. Right. So, 
You know, there's no such thing as coming back home, you know, on the African continent. Like there's no such thing as you coming back home because things didn't work out for you in Europe or wherever you went. It's called, you better sit there and buckle up and make it right. Cause you ain't coming back home just to come back here. Just to be like, Oh, th- so sorry. Things didn't work out. Right. And you think about that is that was really a, a background experience, which is why you've been able to last, you know, as long as you have in China and thrive and succeed because we've been taught those values. Um, you know, and that's at least the beauty, as I can say, is, you know, no matter how people may feel about their parents, good or bad, that's one thing that I know, you know, deep down inside to my core and what I'm always going to teach my kids is just, you know what, our parents set us up right to be able to navigate this world that if they were not here for whatever reason, that we were going to be fine. And I think that's played out. Um, you know, that's critical because I don't, I don't know, you know, if, I see a lot of these kids now. I don't know if they will be okay if they're parents, you know, in the next few years. And you see these tragedies, obviously, that we see all the time that it just seem to be happening day in, day out. And knock on wood, of course, I would never wish that upon anybody that I care for in my family. But let's be honest, man, you just don't know. You just have no idea that you could be walking out today or tomorrow, whatever it is, and something happens. And, you know, me as a father, I mean, I would be mortified to think that I did not do everything possible no matter how young my kids are to give them the tools to be able to at least somewhat navigate, you know, this world. And then you're talking about, you know, I mean, just for me, from a philosophical perspective, I mean, you're talking about, you know, back in the day, I mean, Tutankhamen, right. Fool was what? 14. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. you're talking about, you know, Marcus Aurelius. I mean, he was a teenager. <laughs> I mean, you know, having to be the emperor of Rome. I mean, he shared the, you know, being an emperor of Rome with his half brother at yeah. 19. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, so people could talk about, oh, yeah, that was way back in the day and, you know, lifespans and, you know, I get all of that. But, you know, if you just look about comparatively, let's just say if the lifespan back then was like you died, you know, like life expectancy, what did you say, you know, 45, right? Whatever. I'm just throwing an age, right? You know, to be the emperor of Rome in 19 compared to what your life expectancy is, right? To die in, you know, your 40s, your 50s, whatever it is. All life expectancy now is we can, I mean, I, I forget what it is now, but I think we're willing to our 70s now. Yeah. You know, you're talking about the reality is then that if you just think about that, let's just say by the halfway point of your life, you should be able to achieve what these other individuals achieve if you had the same responsibility, right? Now, not for nothing, I don't see no 35-year-olds, you know, being president of the United States, right? Yeah, I definitely being, don't see that. I'm just being real. Right. So, you know, we are definitely not progressing as far as maturity. Right. We're only prolonging it by saying now is, you know, as you, you know, with all these analogies, you know, 40 now is a new 30 and 50 is a new. I mean, all all we're really admitting is that we're just regressing in maturity, that we just mature later. Like none of that is really a cool thing anymore, is it? Like it's like, you know, people just want to talk about it and make it sound cute. But that's not really the case. Cases now is that we're okay with admitting that, you know, it's taken a much longer to grow into adulthood. Yeah. I mean, Alexander the Great died at 33, didn't he? That's exactly right. Campaign, you know. know. So, <clears throat> now you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, that's so that's right. a big thing. You know, you talk about, you know, from, you know, let's be honest, see, I mean, from your maturity level, I mean, I would think you would be able to, the first person to be able to speak to how how many years and how much do you think you've matured just in the five years 
that if you stayed here in the States, I'll be honest with you, I don't think you would have matured the way that you've matured over these last five years if you no didn't way. have this opportunity. No way. Even, even, even my first year. I think my first year here grew me in a way that I never would have had, even if I spent, you know, that same, that one year, if I would have turned that to five years at home, it wouldn't have happened. I don't, I don't see it. I don't see it. But that's also, you know, something that is troublesome as well because obviously, you know, me being somebody who always wants the best for others, you know, continuously, um, you kind of see some of your peers stagnating and staying in the same space mentally, physically, emotionally, and, you know, you seeing the world. I mean, obviously, see the world is, is such a, a meaningful thing to me. But yeah. <clears throat> that being said, like, just the separation from myself, the, the growth. Um, some of my peers, my friends, closest friends have been inspired by it and have done great things, you know, in that, in that same time frame. But there's a lot of others who, anytime I check in or they hit me up, it's like we're having the same conversation that we had five, ten years ago. Like, I'm not really on that type of time anymore, you know, personally. But, you know, I wish everybody well. But I think uh, traveling and, and having new experiences and, and being on your own kind of separates you and, and pushes you forward in ways that, you know, staying level can never, can never do. Agreed. You know, and I think that's, again, I mean, that, that speaks to, again, what we're talking about from a cultural perspective is, you know, as much as parents do mean well, right. It's, you know, I think about that. And obviously at the time period, you're like, Oh man, like having to get my own rides to practices and games, like, isn't that a little extreme? Like, you know, like, I mean, I've got, I've got kids that I coach that, you know, have their own phones it's 16 or 17 and can't even send a text out or no doubt to their coach to tell them that they're not going to be a practice. Their parents are still doing that. <laughs> right. But you know, you're sitting here, you know, with a house phone at 12 years old, calling up whichever adult, you know what I mean? A friend that you had to be like, Hey man, you know, how are you getting to your game on Saturday? Do you, you know, can I, can I get a ride with you guys? Right. And you're thinking so much of my experience growing up was really this forced independence, right? Like it's not like I would have known any better. Right. Yeah. It's that's the experience that you're forced into. And you either, again, just jump right into it and say, OK, no problem. This is this is what I was suspected. You know, get your own rides to the to the mall, <laughs> get your own rides, you know, what I mean, to the movie theater. Find find your way of getting there. Right. But don't expect us to, you know, to be there for your beck and call, you know, and it's just crazy. And then I'm thinking is, you know, I'm, I'm, as I as I do in my coaching and I'm sitting here with a family that I, you know, that. I know the family because I'm, you know, their kid plays for me or whatever else it is. And I'm meeting them at some pizzeria and they're sitting there having dinner or whatever else it is. And right out of the blue, you hear the kid, you know, who's 13 or 14 saying, Hey, yeah, um, there's a football game and I'm going to go out to the football game. You know, do you think you can drop me off and then we're going to go get ice cream? Do you think you can pick me up at this spot here and this and this and that and boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, man, ain't that nice. You know, <laughs> to be yeah. able to have that. You know what I mean? Your parents just literally your your Uber. You know what I mean? That you ain't gotta pay for. <laughs> you know, just and you're like, wow, like, you know, but again, I'm looking at it as in one context is, wow, that parent is there for their child. In another context, I'm saying, Well, that child is never gonna be able to learn to do anything on their own, or they're gonna expect that this is how the world is supposed to treat them. Right? Don't even don't even get me started on <laughs> on the experiences out here because it's, it's ten times worse. Oh really? I mean, think about it. Just just off of numbers alone, um, because of the the one child policy that China had for a long time. I mean, every kid, every every child is pretty much six adults. You know, four grandparents, two parents. That's right. And not to mention, 
if you're wealthy enough, you might have a nanny or two or three. That's very true. Kid at Academy, who was uh, in our, our baby class, and he has three nannies that come. You know, for one kid. Wow. Forgot. <laughs> you just see, like, you know, luckily I coach the old, you know, I have the older kids, the older groups. I don't really see as much of the, of the nonsense as my coworkers do, but, you know, I know some stories I've seen for, you know, firsthand. It's like, wow. You know, you just sit there and start laughing, like, water breaks. You have parents that come with a little towel. They're wiping their, their you know, even teenage kids' heads down, you know, of, of sweat. You know, like, <laughs> wow. Crazy. Not a kid who might be like 11 years old, 12 years old, maybe. And um, every every Saturday that he comes, he's always like 10 minutes late, walk in, and then it's another like 10 minutes for him to get on the court because his dad got to dress him, tie his shoes and all that for him to get on the court. That's crazy. Yeah. And, you know, you can't say anything because they're coming, they're paying. And out here, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, is a financial um, situation. So, as long as they're coming and they're paying, it's like, you know, you can't really push them that much and nah, this and that. But, yeah, I see, I've seen some stuff that <laughs> you just sit back and you're like, wow, you know, it, it must be nice. Must be nice. One of my kids, I love him to death. He lived in New York for a little bit. But um, this kid has four four iPhone 13 Pro Maxes. Wow. And, you know, I like, what do you need four phones for? You know, you know, just have five like phones. Walk around with no case on the phone. You don't have a phone case. I don't like. I don't really like cases. I was like, so what happens if you, you know, if one of your phone cracks? You know, like, I just buy a new one. <laughs> like, you know, it's casual, straight up. I make fun of my kids all the time. You know, a lot of them have the latest sneakers, the latest gear. They come headband, arm sleeve, all of this stuff, and can't make a layup. You know, yeah, I got all this. Like back in my day, like even I know your day for sure, but my day coming up. You wore all that stuff. You better be nice. Yep. <laughs> you better be nice. Your game better match your accessories. At times, you know, I could have the the wackest shoes on the court, but my game my game matched. You know, my whatever it was, it was up to par. So, yeah, but at least you know what I'm glad that you mentioned that is. Let's you know if we can touch briefly on what is going on in the NBA with these contracts now that are being doled out to these underachievers, right? Like we're talking about like, you know, cause it just gets into the segue of what you were saying is you had to be nice, right? Like if you're going to wear that, you remember the time period where like even wearing a different color cleat in soccer, like you, I mean, oh, you wearing white, you wear white cleats. I mean, you, you got, I mean, you couldn't do that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the day, unless you were like this dude, you had to be nice. And now, yeah. you know, you're talking about what it took to get a shoe contract, right? Like, the Jordans, uh, the Magics, the Birds. I mean, and now it's like, oh, man, it's not just a shoe contract. It's the Supermax deals. It's it. You don't have to win a damn championship. You don't really have to do much. But you know what? You'll make half a billion dollars by just being what? You know, so I'm taking, like, the case of James Harden. It's like, you know, people are up in arms. I mean, obviously, you know, like, and you're like, what do you, what do, you do with that? Right? Because in one context of myself, I'm like, you know, I'm all for black men, especially right in this world that we're living in, making you know money that they're making now. You know, I like to have that contract, right? But there's also that feeling of like, you know, is there going to be a bubble here? Because it's going to get to this. I mean, you're talking. I guess I'm trying to play the component of 
when you look at this increase in white supremacy, right? And you're also seeing on the opposite swing of the pendulum, pendulum, this increase in the amount of money that we're playing black again, athletes, right? Entertainers, whatever you want to call them, um, this kind of money, could it not create this sort of furthering of these extremes? And you have now primarily white males who are feeling like, you know, it's not just the fact that you're making money now and you're able to obviously, you know, set up your your generation for the next, you know, three or four or five generations. But is there an element of us being able to discuss, like, are these individuals truly deserving of that? Or am I just being a little too hard on my own black men? Um, I mean, personally, obviously being a longtime fan of the NBA, I think it's a mixture of, of all those things that you brought up. But um, however, you know, with the new collective bargaining agreement, um, these teams have to spend the money. And when they have to spend it, there's certain uh, – benchmarks that are that are met and if they don't spend a certain money like they get fined by the league so the result is a lot of mediocre players or good players being paid like they're great um it happens you know year throughout and and the 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 salary cap raises pretty much or rises excuse me pretty much every season so that's why every year you hear about somebody breaking the record for highest contract ever and you know you have a team like the Utah Jazz where Rudy Gobert is your highest paid player. I mean, no offense. He's a, you know, three-time defensive player of the year or two-time defensive player of the year, I think. But, you know, we both know that his game isn't reflective of that, especially in this era. Correct. You know, a guy that you could bench and can't be on the floor in certain situations because he can't move his feet or can't give you a bucket, but he's the highest paid player on this team. You know, and a lot of these teams get pigeonholed just because, all right, if I don't pay you, you're going to go somewhere else and get paid. So it's like, you know what? You're a vital part of my team. I'm kind of forced to have to keep you here, especially in Utah, where who's going to Utah as a free agent? That's Correct. a marquee free agent. Nobody's going there. You know, if it, if it was if it was up to players' choice, players would be lining up to play in Brooklyn, New York, L.A., Miami, Golden State, or somewhere in Texas, because or, or, you know, Florida, because of the, the income tax. Yeah. So, you know. The parity of the league, obviously the stipulations and all that, give parity to the league for teams to be able to be competitive and, and keep their homegrown guys. You know, teams can go over the salary cap to re-sign their players, you know, bird rights, things of that nature. So somebody like James Harden, for example, where you brought up his contract, you know, he can opt into $47.7 million for next season. Philly kind of has to pay him that or offer him the Supermax because of what they gave up to get him there. Correct. You know. You're not going to risk losing him for free this summer. You're going to have to pay him. Yep, I and agree. I agree. It's tough. It just... it's tough. So, super tough because you have guys now. Like you know, there's I speak about it with my friends all the time. You know, who ask me my, my point of view and my opinion on basketball. And you know, you have guys who are specialists now. I think that this is a league full of specialists more so ever now than it was before when I was growing up. And even though looking back at the games in the '90s. There were a lot of dudes who couldn't really play, who didn't weren't really all skillful, but they had high levels of IQ where they couldn't hurt you. Whereas now you have so many guys who work on things that they'll never do in an actual game. You know, and I think everything is televised. Your workouts are televised on Instagram and all that. Back in the day, you didn't know what Michael Jordan did unless you saw a home DVD or home VHS of his workouts. You didn't have access to his workout. 
you didn't have access to Kobe's workouts, you know. But now, even the most mediocre player got a workout, got a highlight reel on the gram of him a minute or two minutes cooking. But then in the actual NBA game, he's not doing any of that. Prime example is Ben Simmons. Every summer, you got videos of him shooting threes and doing all this stuff. But then in the game, you're not doing any of it. Yeah, and I guess I I, I love the point that you made there. And I guess I want you know to expand a little bit more on that because I know that myself as a coach, I struggle with that. Is this element of you know these these what I call um um like you said specialists, right? These these drill type of players, right? Like everybody can do this, and I know that that affects the way that people perceive, you know, because I'm trying to think is, you know, what was Tim Duncan's training from a swimmer, right, to becoming undoubtedly, obviously, one of the best power forwards, Slender or whatever you want to call on the planet, right? Like, what is that, yeah. you know, because people then have to be able to explain to me, like, how does that work, right? How does Steve Nash become who Steve Nash became, right? Because... That's not, you know what I mean? Like, you know, like what Kyrie can do is not something you could just go in the gym and just say, ah, right, you know what? You're going to do this drill, dribble around this chair, do this. Like, it's not that. So, you know, like where does it become this element of just like you, you're a hooper and you're a baller because you're a baller and you can work on things to perfect what we call that street ball game, right? But that's in the end, as far as my background in the sport of soccer, that's really what you're, who you are, right? You're a, a player first who then goes to refine their game, right? Yeah. Not these guys who were born in a lab of the basketball court. And then you're trying to figure out where they actually, you know what I mean? Like that's, you know, like I, I guess that's just the thing for me as I'm trying to understand, like, you know, like, isn't that the kind of person that deserves those kind of contracts, right? Like the person you can just go in and be like, all right, go, go win this game for us. And they just get it done. You know, you have to ask Jordan how to do it. It's just like, all right, no problem. I got you. Right. You know, within the triangle offense, within this, within scoring 60, 60 some points against the Boston Celtics, it didn't matter. Right. It was like, just go get this done. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, obviously, um, I think a lot of that goes to, to the bottom line in sports now. Um, if we honestly, if we're being honest and looking at it every year, there's only a select few teams who are truly competing every single year to actually win. You know, there's the majority of the owners are in the business to make money rather than actually win. So with that being said, you hear, you know, hear these stories now, especially in the NFL, the NBA as well, of, you know, certain general managers or coaches saying that they were enticed or encouraged to to purposely lose. Yeah. Because it looked better, you know. And um, I think with that being said, like how many teams are actually willing to really invest and actually win? You know, we're talking about OKC, brother James Harden, but let's go back to OKC. You know, three straight years, they drafted a, a first ballot Hall of Fame player in three straight drafts. Yep. Yeah. Starting with KD in Seattle, and then when they moved to OKC, they got Russ, and then the very next year, they drafted James Harden and Ibaka in the same draft. Correct. So, with that being said, you go to the finals in 2012, and that same summer, you break up your core because you have an owner who's not willing to go into the, the luxury tax to keep a contending team. You know, we look at the Warriors now who are the team of the 2010s, but that team should have been the OKC Thunder, if we're being honest. Yes. KD never leaves. Harden never leaves. Like, how many championship, championships do they win? Especially when, you know, you mean to tell me that the difference between you guys walking away empty-handed and winning 
and being a perennial contender was five to ten million dollars that you could have paid Harden extra. And he already told you that he he was willing to stay a six man because he loved Ginobili's game and he was inspired by Ginobili. He didn't mind that role that he had for him. Like that was the perfect fit. But you're greedy and you don't want to pay the man what he's worth. He went and got his value elsewhere, and now we've seen what that's translated to. You know, so that's I I don't think we've ever seen that where a team literally had three guys be MVP players in in a, a five year window. We've never seen that. That's true. Never happened in Chicago. As good as Pippen was in '94, he didn't win MVP. Hakeem got that. He won All Star Game MVP, but then when Mike true. came back, <laughs> Scotty went right back to being you know Robin. True. The Lakers True. never got that. as good as Kobe and Shaq were. It was still Shaq first, and then Kobe. Kobe became an MVP caliber player. Once, I mean, he was an MVP borderline caliber player when Shaq was there. But when Shaq left, that's when we really saw Kobe become who he, you know, he ultimately is remembered as. You know, like we never saw that. <laughs> we never seen a team have three MVP caliber players on the team at the same time. Yeah. Never. So let me ask you a question. With yeah, so let me ask you a question. With all that being said. All right, is are they keeping Scottie Pippen if Scottie Pippen has James Harden or Russell Westbrook or those type of what we call more challenging personalities? Or are they moving off from Scottie? And because I think that's part of what has to also play into this. And this is, you know, you know how much I, you know, obviously internally, you know how much I love Clay Thompson, right? But if Clay yeah. Thompson, if Clay Thompson was Antoine Walker, right? Well, not. Right, I'm not talking about talent. I'm just talking about personality. We're not talking about Clay Thompson still being a Golden State Warrior. Yeah. Right. And sometimes I think that, and again, I I, agree, I completely agree with you that you have a lot of owners who are just, you know, downright, you know, you know, the bottom line and, and and the selfishness of it. But I also start to think that, you know, a lot of this also falls on, you know, like I, I look at even like Jimmy Butler, right, who obviously is now having a a great situation, but what the stigma was on him for a while, right? Like, you know, you would think like this situation in Philadelphia would have been the best situation for him. Right. And Easily. the team, right. Easily. And you see how exactly you see how even that manipulated itself is how are we, are we sort of blind to this element of, you know, I wouldn't say the hero or shape or whatever it says, but just to, you know, has maturity, as I'm saying, this, has maturity just gone out the window where now we just we can just look at somebody either just pure talent and say, well, I either can manage and deal with that or, you know what, the talent is amazing, but I can't deal with the person's personality, right? Isn't that where a lot of decisions really are made, right? Is the difference in Philadelphia is you have, at the time, two relatively immature superstars, right, who are now going to have their, you know, some fire under their butt because Jimmy Butler is not a person that's going to go out there and tolerate immaturity, right? Because obviously he didn't tolerate it in Minnesota. He didn't tolerate it in Chicago, you know, and could this be part of the reason why, Hey man, like, I don't know if this is the best person to keep here with these sensitive superstars that we have, knowing that, you know, it's more about keeping them happy and calling them, which obviously backfired in Ben Simmons case, right? We, we obviously can talk about that compared to, you know, some of these sort of situations, because I think about it is, you know, has Carl Anthony Towns been any better by being coddled? Right? Yeah. I mean, 
mm-hmm. is he any better by not being in a in a big market where if he was in New York, I mean, this would show, right? Is Zion yeah. Williamson any better because he's coddled in New Orleans? Because that's really what he's been, right? Like, would he have been better off coming to New York where, you know, his affinity to eat whatever he wants to eat or not train or not whatever else it is, would that have been, because it's a bigger market, been much more something that would have been scrutinized? And do we need a little bit more, maybe more of that instead of just, as you say, beyond the contract, which I understand, this coddling of the superstar as if even the mere mention of like, because the reality is, you know, if you think about it is, that's why Golden State works. Draymond doesn't work in a lot of teams, right? Like, do you really want Draymond, you know, in Philly during that time period? <laughs> you, know I mean? you know do you really you know do you really want Draymond you know on that OKC team that we're talking about <laughs> right because it was bad enough that Kendrick Perkins who again wasn't a very talented player right <laughs> like but you know KP couldn't have you know, like, well, who's gonna listen to KP <laughs> yeah you know what I'm saying like you know so you know, with Jimmy Butler, with Jimmy would have talked like, you know, I'm looking at these personalities and saying is, listen, man, I, I look at that Chicago team and that's really what we see, right? It's, it's just, they, they, they had a good system and whatever it says, but isn't that really what we're kind of judging is we've seen this from a top Thibodeau type of teams. He likes young, he likes players who wanted to listen, but because of his sort of brash and a little bit more abrasive old school coaching system, Right, it it just doesn't relate to young, sensitive superstars. <laughs> I, I think I think for me, it all boils that a lot of it boils down to who you have in that locker room, who are your vets, who you came in with. Because look at a situation like, for example, like Andrew Wiggins, right? Yep. Number one, twenty fourteen draft. Minnesota has been perennially a loser, other than the KG era where they briefly had a glimmer of hope making the playoffs consistently, but never getting out of the first round until 2004, where they ultimately made it to the Western Conference Finals and lost to the Lakers. You know, KG won MVP that season. They had the best record in the West, et cetera, et cetera. But other than that, Minnesota has always picked in the lottery, damn near. They got KG in the lottery. They got Stephon Marbury in the lottery. They got Kevin Love even though he was a trade with Memphis, they got him in a lottery. Correct. They got Wiggins, number one pick. They got Towns, number one pick. They got Anthony Edwards, number one pick. Like, they've perennially picked in the lottery. Correct. So, with that being said, Wiggins comes in. We know that he got drafted by the Cavs, right? Traded, whatever. But he's in a situation where, okay, your first couple of years, you win rookie of the year. Then you guys have the rookie of the year the very next year. So, it's two young guys who – both of them. Jimmy comes in. KG came back, but KG wasn't there long enough because he had a, a beef with man, with ownership because that's exactly right. part of his deal coming back was for him to ease his way into the front office and possibly become part of the ownership group. Right. He was prom- they don't fulfill that promise, so he leaves. Disgruntled leaves. So you lose that influence of the most iconic player in your franchise being gone. Right? So, fast forward. Everybody's putting all this pressure on you. Wiggins was supposed to be the most hyped prospect and in, in prep players since Bron, all this other stuff they were talking about, right? He's a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-generation type of player. Okay, he averaged 20 a couple seasons, whatever, whatever, but never really got over that all-star 
got to the all-star level that he was supposed to, that he was projected being. So now you fall out of favor. Jimmy comes in. Jimmy leads you guys to the playoffs. But, you know, Jimmy's a little too rough around the edges for y'all to handle. So Jimmy wants to leave, right? So now Wiggins, career resurgence in Golden State. Team where he knows his role is carved out for him. Last year, obviously, Clay didn't play, so he got a lot of time at the two, starting and figuring out some of the sets and getting th- those looks that would have gone to Clay. They went to Wiggins starting yep. last season. Exactly. So now this season, Clay comes back. You know, Wiggins is an all-star player this year for the first time in his career. What? Like, and to me personally, this run that they've had in this playoffs, Wiggins has been the offensive flex. He's guarding That's the other exactly team's right. best player. He's yeah. producing offensively when he needs to. He's been level-headed. He's been locked in. But the environment changes all of that. We're looking at a team like the Houston Rockets. I fear that they're going to go down a path of something spooky and ugly that we've never seen before because of Perfect. who they have in the forefront of it. Yes. I love Jalen Green, but who are their vets? You're paying a dude. Do you have a dude on your roster who's the second-highest paid player in the league, and he's not playing at all? I know. But he's not playing. You're not even playing him. Like how's that? How's that bold in the locker room, where you got guys who are scrap, you know, fighting and scrapping to stay on an NBA roster? They have a dude in their locker room who is going to be the second highest paid player next season. He's not even going to see the floor. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. That's crazy. You know, so yeah, definitely. You know, most of the teams I think I feel like in the league aren't really in the business to win. Um, it's sad because being a competitor, you know, you and I are both highly competitive. I can't see myself in a situation where I'm playing just to play. I never wanted that. I never aimed for that in my in my playing career. And, you know, any of my kids who've been coached by me, I try to instill a little bit of dog in them just because, you know, I'm, I'm highly competitive nat- naturally. Um, but, you know, the league, you know, you never want to get on anybody making their money. Are players being overpaid now? For sure. A lot of them are. A lot of them. I saw a video of Tristan Thompson. In pregame, missing missed ten straight shots like within five feet of the basket <laughs> in pregame. Yeah, you know what I mean, like, and, you know, this dude's making ninety million to a hundred million dollars to do what? I don't know. I don't know what he does on the court anymore. I mean, Cleveland was a good situation for him because he was rebounding, he was adding some valuable time, but he's played for like ten teams in the last two seasons. It seems like I don't even know where he's at right now. But yeah, I mean, you know, but that's again, that goes sort of to this overarching theme again, as far as like, what do you, I mean, right? Like, because you said it's only a handful of teams, it's only a handful of teams we're talking about. And obviously, we can talk about front office, we can talk about a lot of different things, but the fact of reality is the Golden State Warriors, or again, the San Antonio Spurs, they just don't, they don't have personality issues. You know what I'm saying? Like, the only thing you can say is, oh, Draymond's a lot, right? Like, that's the worst you can say, right? No different than you can say, like, Bruce Bowen was a lot, right? Or, you know what I mean? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's there's just not that element of, like, you know, like, how do you go wrong from David Robinson, right? Like, we know, obviously, when Dennis Rodman was in, that wasn't going to work, right? But how do you go wrong with David Robinson and Tim Duncan, right? Like, we all know what Tony Parker would have been if he didn't have those influences around him. I mean, just put yeah. just put Tony Parker in Atlanta. He's Trey Young, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, Tony Parker, Tony would have been that. Like, and you think how, you know, again, I mean, I'm just looking at guys who could replace. I mean, you put Steve Nash instead of Tony Parker in San Antonio. 
they would have won just as much, if not more, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, you you really look at that, you know. I mean, so it's just like you said, it's 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 definitely the culture, it's definitely the environment. But a lot of times, is I wouldn't say just the luck, but really just the the wherewithal to understand the personality that you're bringing in, right? And understanding, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, I'm always going to be thinking is if I have a young team, you know, I need someone with maturity and, you know, savvy and leadership that's not um, going to, you know, that's not going to cow, uh, cower down to, sort of the mindset of the locker room, right? Because we obviously see it in also like, you know, again, let's look at something that went for football for me with the French national team, right? How in one, in a four-year period, right, you go from Zinedine Zidane's last World Cup to a complete and other fiasco in the following World Cup with literally the same team. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just yeah. replacing one player, right? Same well, coach. Literally the same team, if not better, even supporting cast than ones that Don had, right? And a complete fiasco. <laughs> yeah, that 2010 was 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 a nasty, nasty World Cup for him. Nasty, nasty World Cup. You know, you know what I'm saying? And, and there's no way that you and I would look at those personalities in that 2010 team and say, oh, yeah, I knew that they, they were those kind of players, right? Like, we didn't see that coming. But it was just a collection, you know, almost like I attributed this OKC thing. It's just like, it's all of a sudden like you can just have a collection of people that all of a sudden just get together and it just doesn't look good, right? And we've seen this with even the NFL, these super teams. Like you look at that Philadelphia Eagles team, you know, many, many years ago where, you know. Uh, oh, the super but, team? Yeah, once your boy Vince Young, oh, this, you know, this is a new, you know, and it's just, I mean, it was a complete, <laughs> you know, you look in yourself and saying this, how much of that, again, it's just the fact is that, you know, I, I keep going back to, watching Steven Jackson, who, you know, keeps reminiscing about those Spurs years of, you know, where the first 30 minutes of film was Popovich ripping into Tim Duncan, right? For the way he set a pick, right? Or the way he didn't rebound, whatever I say. He's like, that's the first 30 minutes. Just ripping into Tim and Tim is sitting there taking it, right? And it's like, you know, you can't tell me if Tim is a different type of person, right? That that doesn't feed into Manu Ginobili being more of a tyrant, Right? Or Tony Parker being more of a, you know, you know what, Stephen Jackson. I mean, these are, t it's not, I mean, I was scared. We're not saying that these are easy personalities, but you can see how just having a lack of leadership or someone in there that's not quite settled would lead to that. Yeah, no, <laughs> we can go on and on about that for sure. <laughs> on and on about that. But, bro, definitely got to get you on a lot more. You provided a lot of insight for us, man. I appreciate you. More you know. No problem at all, man. Thanks for having me on, brother. Love you, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good. All right.